Welcome to Brown Blasts, the virtual programming initiative of the Brown University Women's Leadership Council. Today, we are delighted to welcome Dr. Sayantani Dasgupta to the Brown Blast conversation. Dr. Dasgupta is a physician and author. She teaches at Columbia University's Narrative Medicine Program, Center for the Study of Ethnicity and Race, and the Institute for Comparative Literature and Society. She is a nationally recognized speaker on issues of gender, race, storytelling, and medical education, and has been featured on a variety of media outlets. She is also a children's author. Today, she joins Brown University Women's Leadership Council member Katie Whalen to discuss forging your own career path, how we can listen better, the intersection of arts and social justice, and much more. Do enjoy. So, Sayantani, uh, just to start this off, how do you describe yourself? And then the second question is, how do you describe your work? So um, when I saw that you were going to be asking this, I thought about how I normally answer this question because I have a lot of different jobs, right? And so, you know, I'm a pediatrician by training. I have a public health background. I'm a parent. I teach at the Narrative Medicine Program and at the Center for Race and Ethnicity Studies at Columbia. And now I also write um, children's middle grade adventure fiction. Um, and when people hear about all these careers, they often ask me to kind of describe what their interrelationship are. Like, you know, how do all of these seemingly disparate interests and fields connect? And I usually, Katie, I usually answer, you know, they're all connected by story. And that's definitely true. They are all connected by story. You know, medicine is about the giving and receiving of stories. Um, being a professor is the same. Certainly, children's fiction is right all about storytelling. But um, I think particularly because this interview is for Brown Blass and it's about um, me also honoring what Brown has given me and recognizing what the Brown community is about for me still, I'm gonna say that yes, you know, I'm a storyteller. You know, all of my careers are about story, but they're also about power, right? They're also about social justice. And I say this because Brown was the place where my activism wasn't necessarily born at Brown. It was born at home, for sure. I grew up in a pretty political household, but my activism came into kind of maturity. My activism found its wings at Brown. And it was at Brown that I really learned that you can be kind of interdisciplinary and intersectional in your identities and in your jobs, but the core heart of what you do has to be something that you so deeply believe in and that drives everything. And for me, I would say that the core heart of who I am and what I do, be it doctoring or teaching or writing for children, it's about activism. It's about trying to change the world for the better. Um, and I really got permission to 
um, discover that about myself at Brown. Wow, there's so much there. I would love to sort of do deeper dives in. Um, I love how you say got permission to do that um, and to sort of discover that because I think for a lot of folks there is this there is this hunger to live a deeply passionate, multidisciplinary, intersectional life, and at the same time, a not a. a not a sense of how do we start? Where do we begin? And in some, for some people, it might be not feeling like they have the permission to actually um, take the time to explore that and figure out what that is. So I just welcome any thoughts you have or any guidance you would offer someone who has a lot of energy and is not quite sure yet where they want to deploy it and what they want to deploy it in service of. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, we have to give ourselves permission to dream um, and so to me, that's what children's fiction is about. It's about how do you give yourself permission to dream of a future where, you know, everybody can be a superhero or, you know, a future where, um, you know, we can see an end to racism, where, you know, we can see um, a future that's more just for all of us, right? That's about dreaming. And I think that be it in children's fiction for younger kids or be it at the college level where you're immersed in a community like Brown, um, you need to give yourself permission to dream, like to dream about what would be my ideal passionate place. And, you know, I think that that dreaming um, has to be kind of pie in the sky, can't be operational. The operational piece, I think, comes when you say, okay, um, here I am, you know, at Brown or at any, you know, other community that's permitting me to dream about what my passionate life or lives would look like. And then it's about um, gaining the tools, you know, gaining the tools to, you know, follow those various paths or gaining at least one set of tools and just hopping in and saying, you know what, part of making this passionate dream a reality is going to be grit. You know, you're, you know, dreaming isn't enough. Like I'm going to actually have to put in really hard work and maybe it won't be easy at times. And it's maybe not gonna be easy for multiple reasons. We're gonna to have to do a lot of self-examination, but I'm also maybe gonna to have to just put in the hours and put in the work and have the faith that it's gonna work out. Um, and then I think, you know, the third part, so if it's like dreaming plus grit, uh, plus the bravery to, you know, either change paths or not do it exactly the way everybody else is doing it, or to um, kind of add on a seemingly unconnected career onto your other career, um, like I've done. I think all of those pieces are the, you know, are, are the puzzle. Like you can't just have the dreaming without the grit, without the self-examination, without the operationalization. But, um, Again, and not to like wax on about Brown, but I'm feeling so nostalgic because we're having this conversation for the Brown community. Um, I really feel like I got permission to do all of those things. And I started the journey of getting those concrete skill sets, you know, be it in pre-med classes or be it in critical theory English classes or be it in classes where I thought about kind of activism and health justice. Um, I got permission to, you know, start that complicated journey of Brown. So I love that notion of the bravery to not only walk our own path, but also to walk 
um, a path that might change from one part of our life to another. So what it looks like, you know, at Brown could be very different, you know, when we hit the ground running in New York or San Francisco or, or wherever we end up. And I, I want to sort of bring that back to what you hit on in that first question was this, that you have beautifully blended these passions. So medicine and storytelling. Um, and there just isn't a lot of modeling for us um, about sort of, what might be considered non-traditional approaches to careers. Um, and so I would love to know first how you decided to bring those together, like how you were able to do that. But second, how you would encourage other people to do sort of that pie in the sky thinking you were talking about and to have the courage and the sense of self-belief that the, all the things that they're interested in or some of the major things they're interested in have a relationship and can all coexist in whatever our career is? I think it's about looking at your life kind of in the long haul. And that's the gift that honestly, you know, many mentors have given me, but in particular, my parents gave me, they were always like, look, you can do all the things. You just might not be able to do them all at the same time. You might, you might just have to do them sequentially and add on um, and have patience, right? It's your career and your life, hopefully, is a long one. Um, so in a sense, you know, I would say if I was talking to college students, which I often do, you know, now that I teach at Columbia, I would say, you know, be patient, have, have that, um, give yourself permission to kind of do it a step at a time. So I think that's really important. I also think, um, in particular, you know, I'm somebody who has combined a career in the sciences, in the health sciences, with the arts, right, with writing. And so I can speak to maybe that juxtaposition. I think that the idea that medicine is somehow not an art or that art is somehow not healing, I think that's a fallacy, right? Art is deeply necessary for health. Stories are deeply necessary for social justice. Because just think, um, you know, who gets to tell their story? Whose stories get centralized in our cultures? Whose stories get marginalized, right? All that is an issue of power. It's an issue of politics. It's an issue of art and storytelling. Um, and it's an issue of justice. Similarly, on the science end of it, to think like, oh, science is somehow impersonal or unconnected from human emotion and human connection, or it's unconnected from even the arts, is a total fallacy. Um, science, you know, health science, medicine itself is an art. It's about human connection making. It's about healthcare providers kind of being in tune and listening to stories. Um, it's about how people understand their place in the world and what their expectations for that place in the world is. It's about kind of who gets preventative health and who doesn't. So, you know, it's a long way of saying these divisions that we imagine between fields, I think that they are imagined, you know, they aren't real, um, they're fallacies and they keep us in our little, you know, in disconnected ivory towers. And, you know, I say this at the end of a journey or, you know, at the middle, hopefully, of a journey where I've been able to combine um, science and the arts, it wasn't always so easy, right? It wasn't always so easy to write a different story. It wasn't always so easy to go against the broader cultural stories that said, that say, you know, said to me, what do you mean? You spent all these years, you did pre-med at Brown, you went to med school, you went to residency. 
what do you mean you're not going to practice traditionally? You know, what do you mean you're going to do something else? What do you mean you're writing children's books? It was hard. I won't say that I didn't have doubts or I didn't um, kind of have naysayers. Uh, I certainly did. But I would say to young folks, first of all, you have, you know, the Brown community, like many similar communities, is giving you the tools to think interdisciplinarily. And keep, you know, keep up that process of humility and self-examination. Keep asking yourself, am I in the place where I'm contributing, you know, my best skill set? Have I gained my best skill set yet? Um, do I need to put in some more work to get some skills that I can, you know, then fulfill that pie in the sky dream? For me, I went into medicine because I wanted to write stories my whole life, but as a 22-year-old, wasn't sure that I had kind of lived enough life to be, tell, you know, and, and didn't kind of have th those miles behind me. I know that many people write beautiful stories, you know, are wonderful novelists at young ages. That wasn't going to be me. Um, I thought I needed to put in some years to just get some hard skills that I could contribute to the world. And boy, med school was hard, but uh, it certainly gave me a deep sense of humility, right? If, if nothing else, medicine will always keep you humble. But it did, it gave me um, an opportunity to meet people from all different walks of life. Um, it has given me um, the honor to care for young folks and families and communities. Um, and it's been a huge gift. And I don't think that I could imagine writing the sorts of stories that I get to write now for young people. You know, I have this series, Kieran Mall and the Kingdom Beyond. It's a fantasy series. But I don't think I would have been able to be the sort of writer that I am today if I didn't have those years of working with young people behind me in the health field. So I want to circle back to the fantasy series and to the writing. But before we do that, I would love um, if you could speak a little bit more about that intersection between art and social justice. It seems to be uh, perhaps a quieter narrative about the intersection of social justice and art. And I would love if you could unpack a little bit more of that. Absolutely. And I think uh, what I can speak to probably more so is um, narrative arts is, you know, storytelling, um, because that's, you know, my work. So for instance, I teach at Columbia um, courses you know, both for the graduate program in narrative medicine and for um, undergraduate communities. I teach courses in narrative health and social justice. So it's literally this intersection between who gets to tell their own story, right? And who has their story told for them um, and how that dynamic is connected to health in its broadest sense and how that dynamic is connected to social justice. So I have my students at the beginning of every semester, ask themselves the same kind of fundamental questions. Who speaks and who gets spoken for? Who looks and who gets looked at? Whose bodies count and whose bodies are discounted? Kind of what are the connections between the corporeal body, the, you know, the body that we inhabit and the national body or the global body? And to me, um, that connection between Representation, who gets to represent themselves and social justice is really important. It's important in criminal justice, you know, an example you just said. Who are we listening to when we're thinking about the school to prison pipeline, right? Whose voices are being centralized? Are we um, ignoring huge swaths of 
young folks of color, for instance, talking about their experiences, being criminalized in school, right, being given detention for very minor infractions. Are we listening to those voices or are we listening to, are we kind of predominantly honoring and centering voices of, let's say, school administrators or, you know, for-profit prisons or, uh, right, similarly in healthcare, right? Who are we listening to? Um, who is permitted to tell their own story? Are we relying on kind of diagnoses given by professionals? Or are we letting folks who are experiencing illnesses tell their own stories? What are the politics of speaking? What are the politics of representation? That is something that, in fact, the arts can give us insight into. Philosophy can give us insight into. So, you know, the arts and humanities can give us insight into. But it's something so central to fields that are seemingly separate from the arts, like law, medicine, right, uh, political science, what have you. But I think that those sorts of questions make clear to us, again, to go back to this question of interdisciplinarity, that in the med school, we need to not just have folks teaching our students anatomy and physiology, but we need to graduate students who are just as comfortable reading an x-ray as they are also reading a story, right? We need to have literary scholars in our medical institutions. And I think that to me, that's been the joy of teaching in this field called narrative medicine is to recognize that that interest that seemed so esoteric to me, like, oh, I wanna be a writer and I wanna be a doctor, isn't actually esoteric to me. It's critical to the success of both fields. Both fields of storytelling and fields of medicine, they need each other to be successful. And so it wasn't just wacky me thinking that these things were connected. I actually do think that they have fundamental connections that aren't as broadly recognized. I hope they're becoming more broadly recognized. But I do, you know, I firmly believe that without storytelling, we human beings don't exist. And so obviously every single one of our endeavors are centered around stories. I think one of the profound things about humans as storytelling creatures is that we have to learn to listen. Sometimes we have to learn to listen to really hard things. Like, I mean, that question of listening to the answer of who gets to look and who gets looked at, for some people, that will be very, very hard to hear the answer to, or it could be very hard to answer as well. How do you think about listening yourself? And then also, how do you teach your students how to listen? Because it's like we get taught there are speaking classes, there are oration classes, there are um, you know, classes about how we communicate, but it tends to be much more about how we speak as opposed to how we listen. Absolutely. Oh, that's really well said. You know, I entered into the field of narrative medicine by first having done work in what we then still called cultural competency. When I was in residency, when I was in fellowship, when I was a young um, attending physician, I was doing this work because I was interested in racial justice. I was doing this work in this field called cultural competency. Back then, unfortunately, we still had the kind of it's a small world after all approach to that, which means when I was in medical school, I'd be given a list of like 10 things that South Asians believed about their healthcare, And like, if I memorized them, then I was competent to treat that community. Such a flawed approach. 
Certainly there's many other approaches. There's anthropological approaches. You can simply ask somebody what they think is wrong with them, right? There's structural approaches, right? You have to understand not only why somebody may be not eating all the fruits and vegetables that you tell them to eat despite having diabetes. There may be structural reasons for that. It may be that they live in an urban area. You know, it may be kind of a food desert where they don't have access to farmer's markets or kind of fresh groceries. So you can look at people's own answers. You can look at structural answers um, and you can certainly look at cultural answers. But when I started questioning my own role in cultural competency, um, I realized that so much of cultural competency was still if not about speaking, it wasn't really about listening. It was about like grabbing on to, you know, 10 kind of simplified pieces of knowledge and then feeling like you were done. True listening, I think, is a constant process of self-examination. Hmm. That's what makes it hard. True listening, I think, is a constant process of humility. It's a constant process of not just questioning yourself, saying, hey, you know, am I fully present? What are the prejudices I'm bringing to this listening encounter? What are the things, what are the assumptions I'm making about this person before I even hear them say one word? Mm. It's not just asking those questions, it's being willing to listen to the answers, to listen to the fact that, oh, maybe I am bringing certain prejudices. Maybe I am bringing certain negative expectations to this encounter and being willing to look that in the face. Like it's, it's hard to look your own privilege and prejudice in the face and then start to work on it um, and recognize that just acknowledging it isn't enough. I've got to start to dismantle it. And that dismantling isn't going to happen in one day. And that, you know, notion I have coined a term called narrative humility. And I coined that term because I had moved from cultural competence to something called cultural humility, which was a term, you know, coined by some other scholars, some other wonderful scholars. But to me, still cultural humility seemed not enough. It seemed like something we did when those other people walked into our law offices or our medical offices or our classrooms people who are different than me. Narrative humility, I think, makes clear that no matter who we're listening to, be it a family member, be it somebody with a very different identity from you know, ourselves, be it somebody with a very similar identity ostensibly to ourselves, there are always going to be aspects of that other person's story that remain opaque to us, mm. that remain ununderstandable to us, and that in fact, the goal of listening is not to consume, right? It's not to understand in totality another human being. That's hubris. That's an unjust enactment of power. We should never be seeking to kind of fully understand someone. It's, it's not even possible. But I think that's a really hard thing to come to grips with that like no matter how fully we're attending to someone, fully we're listening to them, we're never going to fully understand them. That's not possible. The best we can do is to go on a journey with them, to accompany them. If you're listening to somebody else's story, you're saying to them, hey, I'm going to accompany you for a while. I'm going to walk your path with you for a while, but let you determine the journey, right? Let you draw the map. 
So if I'm a doctor going on a journey with a patient who's telling me a story, they get to draw the map. They get to lead me like down the path right through the woods. I just get to accompany them. I have the honor of accompanying them only for a little while on the path. I haven't been with them before. I'm not necessarily going to go with them, you know, on as they walk on, but I've had the honor of accompanying them at least for a little while. And I think that's what we as teachers do. We accompany our students at least for a little while. That's what I'm doing as a parent, right? I have a son who's now looking at colleges. And so I'm thinking about the fact that, boy, I've gotten to accompany you at least up to now. And maybe sometimes now our paths are going to, you know, diverge, but hopefully we'll still keep walking together regardless. And I think that that's really what listening is. Listening is about a fully present, that sort of listening, right? It's, it's being fully present to our own um, limitations and being humble about them and allowing that deep human connection to give us more insight into our own true selves. What I'm understanding about narrative humility is sort of a willingness to go into a conversation and let it change your mind. Um, maybe let it sort of like open your awareness. Maybe narrative humility is not just an opportunity to go into a conversation to change your mind, but to go into a conversation and allow that conversation, that connection to change you. Oh, yes. Absolutely. And I remember somebody once telling me inertia is the most powerful force. And they were talking about that in a professional sense, but I think in a personal sense, it can be very threatening to change how you understand and relate to the world. And that's so much of what um, the growing awareness of our privilege is, is sort of seeing the judgments that are baked into us is kind of unlearning a lot of things that we've been socialized to learn. And But absent listening, it's it's impossible to do that. Yeah. Yeah, it is hard. It's really hard to challenge your privilege, right? It's, it's really hard. But if you're fully present and listening, you know, be it in a professional sense, be it, you, you know, there's some of us who are professional listeners, right? We're teachers, we're doctors, we're lawyers, you know, uh, we're social scientists, we're artists, right? Who are listening because we're creating art. Or in your personal life, if you're listening simply as a parent or as a family member or as a neighbor, you know, here's a good example. A neighbor of mine, unfortunately, just lost a family member. And I was thinking just about loss and how we show up when somebody else is grieving. And I think a lot of us understand that it's simply being there that's the important thing, right? You don't show up with a bunch of platitudes, um, even though we may be uncomfortable and we may want to say things like, oh, they're in a better place or, oh, you know, um, at least they're not suffering anymore. Like we want to say these things, you know, I too feel compelled to say them. Mm. But I think at our heart, we know that showing up when somebody else is hurting is just about being present with them, right? Mm. Wholly present with them and just sitting in their presence and allowing them to just be and making clear that you are there for them, right? You are you are, again, accompanying them. You don't necessarily have an agenda. You're not necessarily drawing the path. You're just there for them. Mm. And I think a lot of us know this. A lot of us who've been there for our parents or our best friends or our roommates in college, right, or our neighbors or our students, we know this. We know that the most important, once you get over your nervousness, once you get over, like, all that energy, you know that the really important thing you did was you showed up. 
right? You showed up and you listened. And that fully present showing up to me is what I'm trying to teach my students to do in these classes in narrative medicine. And it's, it's a hard task. And yet it's not magic either, right? If we can, you know, take an English graduate student off the street and teach them how to closely read Emily Bronte, to read for plot and character and emotion and, uh, you know, uh, alliteration and diction and all these good things. We can bring in a lawyer or a doctor or a nurse or a therapist, you know, in as part of their training, give them the interdisciplinary tools it takes to approach their careers with narrative humility. Those interdisciplinary tools are in their own fields, but they're also literary tools and philosophical tools. They're tools from the arts, right? There's a a colleague of mine just published uh, an article today, an academic article um, on some work he's been doing for four years, looking at the impact of um, going to museums and doing figure drawing classes on medical students. Hmm. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, I think, an interdisciplinary approach to many of our careers is, many of our professional lives, I think is really an important change, right? Our world is getting smaller. Hmm. We are seeing the interconnections between healthcare and the environment and law and urban planning and the arts, not just in our personal lives, but I think in our professional lives. And I think that it, For me as an educator, um, what that means is we have to put structures in place that are interdisciplinary. So we have to have literary scholars teaching in the medical school, right? We have to have philosophers uh, teaching right next to the anatomy lab, right? Because that's a deeply philosophical experience. Mm. Uh, Do cadaver dissection. If you don't have the philosophical tools to deal with life and death, you know, you're probably being totally upended in that experience. So you know, I think the interdisciplinarity is both something that we as individuals need to give ourselves permission to engage with, but I think that as disciplines, we also need to think about it, you know, as educators, as a medical educator or a law school educator, or an educator in a different sort of graduate school, we need to think about that. Human beings don't live in disciplines. We live in the very messy intersections. I think it's almost like a sort of honoring of the reality of the human experience, which is it does not exist just in law or just in medicine or just in poetry or just in science. It exists in all of them. And at any given day, we touch almost every piece of that. So I want to circle back to your writing Um, and, you know, in in reading about you, uh, you know, you've written about growing up and not seeing people like you in the books that you read. And, you know, now we're at a place where there are more black and brown protagonists in children's books. And we still have a really long way to go before children or middle age or, you know, young adult books and just book literature in general um, represents sort of the full cross section of readers. So I would welcome your thoughts on what you think it takes to accelerate this, because as it relates to accompanying people for a child to read a book and not see herself in it, to be so unaccompanied as you can speak to is a, is a kind of, is a sort of very deep level of pain and kind of aloneness. Oh, absolutely. I have many thoughts on that one because I, I, I agree with you. Not 
for a young person or for any of us, not seeing ourselves reflected in our cultural stories, be those books, movies, representations on billboards, you know, what have you, um, not being represented in cultural stories, I think is a kind of violence, right? That's a, mm. it's a kind of narrative violence. And I know this as a pediatrician in my office, you know, when I still saw patients, I would write prescriptions for reading because I knew that, um, and not just myself, like this is a very common practice for many pediatricians and family practitioners. We write prescriptions for reading and we'll say like, you know, read to your baby 20 minutes a day, we might say to a young parent, or if, you know, if it's somebody who's reading themselves, we might say, read to your parents 20, you know, for 20 minutes today. Again, I was talking before about reading being connected to health or stories being connected to health. We know that reading increases language acquisition, it increases language production, it increases attachment, um, right? Attachment to our caregivers, it increases literacy, all good things. But I think that a key component of that is representation. Um, I think it's having access not just to stories, but to stories that reflect the wide world around you. Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop, uh, who is I think a professor emerita now at Ohio State, um, has talked about stories as windows, as mirrors, and as sliding glass doors. So if they're windows, they're a glimpse into somebody else's life who's not like you. If they're mirrors, then, oh my gosh, I get to see my own life and my own family and my own identity reflected in this story. And if they're sliding glass doors, then they're an entryway. They're inviting you into maybe an experience outside of yourself. They're inviting you to take, you know, rewrite your life's journey a little bit maybe um, because you've learned something new about a different community. And when I was in pediatric practice, it was really important. I practiced in the Bronx and in Northern Manhattan. Um, my colleagues and I knew it was really important to have multilingual books. It was really important to have books that represented the various kind of family members um, that our kids had, our patients had, the various kinds of ethnic backgrounds that our patients came from. Um, so I know this, you know, kind of in my heart as a professional. I know this also in my bones because when I was little, I grew up in, I, I'm an immigrant daughter. I grew up in the heart of the Midwest, loving stories. I was a, you know, devourer of novels as a kid, but never, ever seeing myself reflected in any way, shape or form in those stories. Mm. And it, it was a kind of psychic violence because there's a deep part of you. I mean, I think it can go one of a couple ways. If some, you know, your pediatrician's writing your prescriptions for reading and yet handing you books that you're never reflected in, mm. you may end up believing, what's this reading nonsense? It's not for me, it's for somebody else, right? Mm. You either get turned off entirely to reading or you don't, that's, you know, I didn't get turned off to reading, but I did have a big hole in my heart. I had a big, kind of heaviness in me where I started to believe that maybe I wasn't worthy of being represented, right? Maybe I was so, maybe my brown skin body was so unappealing. Maybe there was something about my cultural background that was so unworthy, un-American, non-heroic, that was such a blight, right, on my community. Um, I started to internalize kind of those racist messages and in combination with the kind of lack of representation 
broader kind of micro and macro aggressions I was experiencing as a young girl of color, it was a kind of deep psychic wound. Like it was, it took me years to be able to name that pain inside of myself and to say, you know what? I'm not not worthy. Like this has nothing to do with me. I can be a hero. I can save myself. I can save the world if I want to. This is racism. Like until I learned to name it, right? This is xenophobia. This is people being anti-immigrant. That's why they're against my family. Not because my family is inherently wrong in some way. There's nothing wrong with us. But it took so long for me to get to that stage. And I just didn't, I didn't want that for my kids. And I didn't want it for any of our kids. Um, I didn't want that lack of representation in children's literature to make that kind of a psychic wound. And so I thought, okay, well, you know, what's the best thing I can do? I started writing a story, a series of stories about a heroic brown-skinned immigrant daughter, intergalactic demon slayer, because I'm a big science nerd, for my own children. And I went to my own cultural stories. I went to the stories that my grandma would tell me on my long summer vacations to India. And they were these great stories of like princes and princesses and flying horses and serpent kings and these drooling, rhyming, rock cush demons who would say things like, you know, dirty socks and stinky feet. I smell royal human meat. You know, they were like the monsters that we love to hate. And I went to those cultural stories and I said, hey, you know, there is a treasure trove of stories here. What if I modernize them and apply them and, um, and really play with, like, play with them. You know, I think that the fun thing about oral stories is that they're constantly evolving and constantly adapting. And so that's why I wouldn't feel bad. Like even my grandma would tell us these folk stories. And so imagine, I'm sure we've all had this experience. Your parent or your grandparent is telling you a story and suddenly the thing that you've done wrong that day, like let's say you've been caught lying that day, makes its way into the story, right? Um, and so my grandma would tell us these stories, but they would like weirdly adapt. Like if one of my cousins had done something bad, right? That would be a lesson in the story. And so I didn't feel bad adapting them because I recognized that um, to take these traditional folk tales and to give them new life in an immigrant context that was kind of a part of the way that folktales work. I wrote these stories initially for my kids. It's been great fun to be able to share these heroic adventure stories about a 12-year-old immigrant girl from New Jersey who has to travel across the dimensions and slay demons and save her parents. To share these stories, which are in a sense a metaphor for the immigrant experience, mm -hmm. um, right? It's a metaphor for being, half, being able to kind of straddle dimensions, you know, my character has to slay rock kush demons. The rock kush demon in my personal life was racism. So on the one hand, you know, you can think about them at that metaphorical level, but you can just go in for the fun and the humor and the action too. And it's been wonderful to share these stories that I wrote as mirrors, right? I wrote these stories so that my kids could see themselves, see brown skinned kids like themselves saving the multiverse. And to realize that they have such a beautiful window and sliding glass door function too. Mm -hmm. So it's amazing to go to schools and see kids who are South Asian kind of resonate with these stories, but then kids who aren't at all mm. also resonate with them. Because I think it's important for all of our kids to be able to recognize that to kind of heal our ailing world, we're going to need all the superheroes we can get. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> all the superheroes of all the backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a real joy to see how um, Kieran Mall has been embraced by kids of all sorts of backgrounds. That's been really fun. Well, I'm kind of amazed at how much you do. And, you know, we, we live in um, such a busy world and such frantic times. And I would love to know, like, how do you manage stress and overwhelm? And how do you think about your relationship to time and how you use it? Yeah, I mean, I think that it goes back to that question that we were talking about before of you can do all the things, you just can't do it all at the same time. And it goes back to the question of humility, recognizing like, you know what, I'm going to do my darned best. But like, that's about, that's all I can do. Like I'm on a one stage of my longer journey. Mm. I have a lot more to learn. And not so, you know, so recognizing that allows me to answer that self-doubt or that self-criticism when I'm like, oh, shoot, I wish I had written the story better, or I wish I had taught that class better, or I wish I had done this thing better. I think all that negativity that we put on ourselves, all that, I have to have everything done and have it done yesterday, right? That, that speed that we put on ourselves. I think that that's really exhausting. I think a part of our deep cultural exhaustion is about how much we expect to do all at the same time and perfectly and quickly right? Um, And then wake up tomorrow and do that all again. (laughs) And I think that, you know, I have this uh, friend and colleague who says, you know, the most political act we can do is to slow down. And at first I misunderstood, like I thought that meant like be lazy and like then I, or whatever, like not do the thing that I'm really passionate about. And then it's like, well, life isn't worth living if I'm doing the thing that I'm passionate about. Like, Slowing down also, it doesn't mean not doing the thing you're passionate about. It means recognizing that you're just a, like today is just a blip, hopefully, right? Mm-hmm. In your longer story. We're just in one part of a process. Like there is still room to grow. There's things to learn. There's ways to get better. And so I think that Yes. Do I get overwhelmed? Absolutely. I have kids and three jobs and a dog (laughs) and all the things that everybody else has. But I keep trying to ask myself, like, am I doing the thing that I'm passionate about? Mm. Lucky enough that I get to say yes. Am I passionate about teaching? Yes. Am I passionate about healthcare? Yes. Am I passionate about storytelling? Yes. So am I passionate about, you know, raising children who will hopefully make the world a better place? Yes. So I get to say yes to a lot of those, like, am I doing my passion questions? And I think that keeps us going. I think if we're lucky enough to have gotten to a place where we can both, you know, pay the bills and put food on the table and answer yes to that passion question, I think that's a pretty lucky and good place to be in. So that keeps me going, certainly, because then all the work I'm doing becomes energizing as opposed to enervating. Mm. And then I think giving ourselves permission to be humble and say, you know what, today's class, I wasn't the best professor I could be. Or this first book, maybe this one aspect of it, I wish it could have been better. And to say, okay, like tomorrow I'll try again. Or I'll use this as a lesson to like put, you know, have the next part of my journey be a little bit different. So I think in a sense, you know, it's, it's that same thing. Like when uh, the astronauts first went to the moon and we got to look back on earth. 
you know, we kind of as a society suddenly saw ourselves differently, like the, you know, humanity started to see itself differently. We, we suddenly were uncentered, right? We, we weren't kind of the end all and be all. Uh, we weren't the only thing out there. We recognized kind of our, our small role in a broader galaxy. I think if we can take that sort of an attitude and apply it to our day-to-day life and recognize this is but one tiny, today is one tiny speck and okay, today didn't go like I thought it was going to, but it's just one tiny speck in like a broader galaxy of possibilities. I, I think, I think we're going to be okay if we, if we do it like that. And that, that's what keeps me going, honestly. Well, that is just a beautiful note to end on. That was wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us for Brown Blast. This was an absolute treat. Well, this was such a joy. Thank you so much. And again, uh, such a pleasure to talk to the Brown community, particularly when so much of what I get to do in my life is because of what Brown and the Brown community uh, enabled me to be brave enough to dream. Wonderful. Well, I no doubt hearing this will enable that that bravery in others. So thank you again so much. Well, thank you. Thank you, Katie. And, and thank you to the whole Brown Blast crew. <laughs>